Okidoki. The training world is full of technical editing courses that don't teach the high-end creativity that viewers expect. Inside the Edit was created specifically to teach you every single creative skill you'll ever need to mesmerize your audience. Hello again, dear friends. I hope you are well and having a productive week in the cutting room. I want to welcome you back to another episode of Once Upon a Timeline, the official podcast of Inside the Edit with me, Paddy Bird. On each episode of the show, we take a creative or psychological skill needed in our art form and dive into it in great detail. We want to enhance your ability as a visual storyteller so you can craft a successful career. We turn you into a powerful creative editor. So what's on the shot list for this week's show? Well, I want to talk about something which I think is skipped over all the time when discussing the preliminary stages of assembling and rough cutting. There seems to be a missing piece of that chain that is not really discussed, but is so fundamental to our initial dive into the raw footage. Yeah, we're kind of going back again to fundamentals this week, like we did on last week's episode. We're going to go deep into this subject today, as it is unquestionably a hugely rewarding discussion to be had. Don't forget, we've also got our usual Ask Paddy Q&A segment, as well as our recommendation for what's worth watching from an editing theory perspective coming up later on the show. And if you also want to find out about the exciting final part of our live bootcamp webinar series on music editing coming up in a few weeks' time, stay tuned as I'll tell you all about that as well. It's going to be packed with tons of high-end editing theory on how to cut music like a pro. Okay, I will say no more. Let's dive into this week's creative discussion. It's a difficult conversation to have with someone when you're watching their rough cut. Why didn't you put this shot in or that piece of dialogue? These are the kind of shots that you should have selected, at least in the early assembly stages, in order to fulfill the meaning of the scene. Now, I may be exec producing a film or giving creative feedback to a private client or teaching on our master's degree, but the fundamental laws of shot selection are so often skipped over to the detriment of the rough cut. First principles, defined by Aristotle over 2,000 years ago, we must go back to the start, defining a basic assumption that cannot be deduced any further. Zen Buddhists call it going back to the root of the issue. And of course, through different times, ages, great thinkers and numerous cultures, this first principles philosophy 
has had many different names. For us as creative editors, shot selection can be seen as the ultimate in first principles in our art form. No matter the genre, no matter our final duration, we've been given a large amount of raw footage which we have to slowly whittle down and craft into something watchable for a few, a few hundred, a few thousand or a few million viewers. There's what happened in the raw footage versus what the client wants. And of course, the distance between those two realities can be very narrow or you maybe had a park and aircraft carrier between them. Of course, that all depends on hundreds of different factors. But shot selection in all its forms is by its very nature the first attempt at filtering the chaos and duplication out of the raw footage and getting an incredibly rough assembly edit onto the timeline. It's not even a rough cut, which of course has some secondary work done on it to make it watchable. You know, I so often get asked, what is going on in your mind, in the mind of a pro editor when they're selecting or pulling shots out of the raw footage and putting them down onto the timeline? Or just subtracting content from the whole if we're one of those editors who likes to put everything on the timeline and delete as we go? Why did you choose this shot and not that shot? Why are you leaving in two different versions of this dialogue sync and not just one? Why did you not include all of the handheld shots for this particular sequence? And of course, many variations on this same theme. Now, if it were possible to give a simple and short answer, the art of editing wouldn't be the complex art form that it is, and more akin to maybe physics or engineering. You know, X minus Y and you'll get Z. Simple. But of course it's not. There's no simple answer in editing, and that's why I, and probably you, love it so much. The excitement is in the complexity and the endless potentiality. You know, I love to talk about the different stages within the creative editing process, not so much as a, a set of concrete mathematical answers, but more around perceptions and considerations that change and fluctuate based on the differing factors at play. And shot selection is no different. What we decide to pull out of the raw footage and placed down onto our timeline is obviously incredibly important. It's vital that we recognize the best shots and the best characters and action and dialogue that we allow them to say and begin our construction around these elements. But what is often less considered is the major impact and importance of what we leave on the cutting room floor, what we don't include, what we deselect, if you will. The amount of content we cut out is always much larger than, than what we decide to keep. And so going through this preliminary filtering process is an essential first step in deciding dozens of different creative aspects to any sequence that we're building. Omission is the greatest form of distortion, says the famous axiom in investigative journalism. And to a certain extent, that is true in many forms of editing. By not including a certain dialogue line, a certain facial reaction, a certain opinion from a character in a reality TV show or documentary scene, we could be wildly distorting, diluting or plain old manipulating the perception of what actually happened compared to what we show to the audience. But of course, if we're editing something like a lifestyle brand corporate type film for a company's website, 
there's little in the way of distortion by the deselection process because the shooting of said raw footage was never meant to be a balanced piece of journalism, rather a highly influenced marketing film that introduces the values and practices of a company to potential customers. The raw footage, and therefore the outcome, is very different. And it's important we know the distinction between the two. Still, whatever the genre, whatever the client, whatever the duration of whatever we're cutting, keeping this thought process in our mind cannot but make us better editors. There is a huge range of content with a huge range of outcomes. And we need to define that. We need to consider heavily the impact of what we take out just as much as what we decide to keep in and couple that with examining the genre we're currently working in. So then that begs the question, how do we decide what to leave out and what to keep in? What to select and what to deselect from the raw footage? And here we get to the core of this week's issue. Now, for me, the answer to this is the answer to a very large percentage of creative questions that we must ask ourselves in the initial assembly and rough cutting stages. It also sets up the mindset of narrative storytelling within our art form and lets us build the visual grammar so vital to a compelling sequence. And for me, the answer is intention. We have to ask ourselves before we start editing, what is the intention of this scene, of this sequence, of this montage, whatever? If we at least have a vague idea about the answer to this, then we've created the ability to throw an enormous amount of useless content onto the cutting room floor. Let's explain. If I know that the intention of the scene is X, then everything in the raw footage that isn't X or related to X or explains X or illustrates X or leads into X or backs up X, then I know it can be deselected. I know it can be thrown on the cutting room floor. I don't need it. If I know that my pre-visualized intention to a sequence is Y, then anything that is not helping me to establish Y on the timeline can go. I can deselect it from my content because it will not serve the purpose of what I'm cutting. Now, it sounds simple, but you have no idea how many editors skip this initial stage in the craft and create an assembly that is not aligned to the purpose of the scene. So let's go a bit deeper and break it down even more. Always start off with intention when cutting a scene intention, meaning, purpose. They all kind of mean the same thing, to be honest, and I, I don't really distinguish between any of them in this context. What is the intention or meaning or purpose of this thing I'm cutting? Now, let's use a very simple exercise to illustrate this point. Let's say we had a chat with our director or producer or corporate client or news client, whatever, and it was decided that for this next scene, the tone had to be one of tension or jeopardy. But we had about 45 minutes of raw footage for this sequence, and there was a whole range of emotions and tonalities within that 45 minutes. So, take a sheet of paper and draw a line down the middle. At the top, on one side, write intention. And on the other side, write non-intention. So, essentially, we have two separate columns to write in. 
what we're going to do is brainstorm the things that we'd like to see and not like to see. Things in the intention column and things in the non-intention column. And therefore, things that we want to select from the rushes and deselect from the rushes. You know, a short exercise like this can really prepare our minds for the psychological, behavioral, structural, action-based and dialogue-based content that we want to see and don't want to see. They carve a strong groove in our minds as to what is going to make it through the initial shot auditioning process and most importantly, what won't. If we filter every single shot we see through this mindset, then it becomes a lot easier to distinguish what will make it onto our timeline for maximum effect. So let's brainstorm. In our initial column for our fictitious tension and jeopardy scene, what would we write? Well, how about starting off with nervous body language? That matches our scene's intention perfectly. So if we see any nervous body language, we know that we'll want to select that for an initial assembly. We could even do a sublist with things like self-soothing scratches or strokes to the face and neck, slumped shoulders, excess shifting around in the seat from the character, deep sighs or quick breathing. Next could be something like rapid speech or highly emotional language or dialogue that spells out the consequences of this tension. Of course, it could be really broad or really detailed, but you get what I'm trying to say here. We're brainstorming the things that we're looking for. Okay, so let's go over to the other column. What would we not want to see in this scene? Well, well it's easy to go the opposite. Relaxed body language might be a pretty good place to start. Smiling, laughing, contentment. You know, these are all polar opposite words to tension. If a character who was being interviewed suddenly put their hands behind their back and leaned back in their chair and looked up at the ceiling while slowly answering the questions with no real sense of urgency, would that make it into the non-intention column? Hell yeah. So this classification, this ring fencing, this redistribution of shots through the filtering system of sequence intention is an incredibly powerful mindset. It allows us to truly see the meaning of every shot in the raw footage and ask the fundamental question as to its use. Is it going to serve the purpose of the scene or take away from it? You know, I love this little exercise and I, I teach it all the time on our master's degree. But of course, the great thing is, is that you can expand and use it for just about any type of stylizational element you want to create. Say, for example, the camera movement you allow onto the timeline. Let's take another example. If we wanted to create a sense of calm, are we going to be putting in whip pans and quick pull focuses listed on the intention side or non-intention side of our sheet of paper? Well, of course, we're going to be classifying that kind of camera movement on the non-intention side as it wouldn't create a sense of calm. Quite the opposite. Now, let's put this in perspective. Will this create the perfect rough cut? Of course not. That's a whole new set of techniques, skills, and thought processes. But what it does do is populate our mind with a checklist of particular types of shots we want to see and want to avoid. 
a kind of deliberate confirmation bias, if you will, where we actively seek out and choose content that is in alignment to the intention or meaning or purpose of the sequence we're cutting out of the mountain of uncut raw footage that's been given to us. Now, especially in the unscripted genres, which occupy the real lion's share of content out there in the editing world, the emotional and behavioral variation in raw footage can often be immense and sifting through and finding the true essence of something is a massive percentage of our job in the first few weeks on a film. If a very specific camera move or facial grimace from a character or off-the-cuff dialogue line is in alignment with our scene's purpose, then it's essential it makes it down onto the timeline for the assembly edit. You know, sequences are often made by these tiny little moments that show off our ability to use visual flair and high-end behavioral stylization at key yet subtle moments. It's these moments on a timeline that separate us from the average editor. So, to sum up, always get back to first principles. Always get back to the root, the core, whatever you want to call it, or whatever saying you most resonate with. A major reason why so many people never make it into the craft of editing is the sheer laboriousness of this initial selection and deselection process. Most people just don't have the patience. But it's important not to fall at the first hurdle and to take this process really seriously. We need every possible eventuality available to us in the next stage of rough cutting. And to have sifted and filtered through everything with the lens of intention firmly in our minds is truly at the heart of high-end editing. Just like a director or camera operator forgetting to shoot certain shots, which makes our job a lot harder, we must not go through this next process towards rough cutting and leave out types of shots which would really add to the scene's purpose. Going back afterwards is possible, of course, but it's not something we really want to get into the habit of, as we simply don't have the time in today's fast-moving editing world. And finally, this deliberate confirmation bias in our shot selection builds our ability to truly ask ourselves and continuously demonstrate what the individual elements are that make up any one successful sequence. You know, macro editing platitudes, they sound beautiful, but they're pretty much useless when you're in the first few years of learning this art form. And don't forget, at this stage, it's just an assembly. It's not a rough cut, so don't worry. It will be a long and messy viewing experience. But as we say, the magic isn't in the first cut. It's in the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, the tenth. I hope you enjoyed this week's creative discussion, dear friends. Reach out to us on social and tell us what you think. Have you searched far and wide for a course on how to actually edit and found nothing? Have you tried to learn editing and just been inundated with courses that teach the software and not how to cut? Well, you're not alone. 
and inside the edit we are the first and only company to create an online course that takes you through every single stage of the creative editing process from baby steps all the way up to high-end professional through hundreds of examples creative concepts and stylization techniques you learn the secrets of this amazing art form the Inside the Edit course is used by many of the world's major media brands and will transform you into a powerful creative editor. Go on over to InsideTheEdit.com and try it for free. Okay, it's time for this week's What Am I Watching? Well, this week I watched again, probably for about the two or three hundredth time, one of my very favorite edited movies, a movie that was absolutely instrumental in me learning how to cut archive in a stylized way. Now, I can't remember if I've mentioned this movie on previous episodes of Once Upon a Timeline, but even if I have, it's worth a second mention. Oliver Stone's JFK. Wow. The cutting in this movie is just ridiculously good. And Joe Hutching and Pietro Scalia deserved the Oscar they walked away with at that year's Academy Awards. So, what's so good about it? Well, it tells the story of New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, played by Kevin Costner, who was the only person to bring a prosecution for the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. The casting is exceptional, with Gary Oldman playing Lee Harvey Oswald to name just one of the massive ensemble. But what I love about it most is the highly intelligent mixture of original archive, news reports, photos, and how it's all mixed in with the reconstructed archive that Oliver Stone shot for the movie some three decades later. It's a bit nerdy, but I actually used to play a game with myself while watching it as a teenager to see if I could guess which was the original news footage and which was new footage made to look old. The movement, the controlled messiness, the deliberate pacing manipulation in all this archive and how the editors weaved it into the drama is just simply breathtaking. I still haven't seen a film that tries to achieve the same thing with that amount of archive and do it as well. It's also a great lesson in what you can get away with in terms of the kind of unkept and untidy newsreel effect there's like jump cuts all over the place, highly designed visual chaos, movement of messy elements in the frame, simulated film flashes, and just the general overall tonality of controlled chaotic rhythm. They go back and forth in different parts of the film, telling the same storyline but from a different angle or different people's perspectives, and at different speeds and pacing. And it all kind of builds up into this absolutely masterful immersion of what happened that day in Texas. The editing to JFK has such a profound effect on me as an editor. You know, I spent years going through it and trying to dissect each sequence shot by shot and asking myself, how the hell did these guys do that? But it wasn't just me. It influenced a whole generation of editors and quite rightly so. If you'd like to watch a near three-hour masterclass in editing, go and watch Oliver Stone's JFK this weekend and see Joe Hutching and Pietro Scalia in action. You won't be disappointed. (music) 
So I'm really excited to announce the final part of our live bootcamp webinar series on music editing, dear friends. Part three of how to use music in your edits to devastating effect is on Saturday the 4th of June at 3 p.m. London time. We're going to be talking through and showing and discussing a ton of high-end techniques used at the very top of the industry. The webinar lasts four hours and costs just £99. And don't forget, you have a whole month to watch the recording if you can't make the live session. Part one and two of the Bootcamp series are available to purchase right now if you've missed them over at InsideTheEdit.com. Go and check it out. Get your questions ready and your notepads out. It's going to be an epic creative masterclass. Okay, so we got a great question for this week's Ask Paddy. Alice from the UK says, I'm creating a short doc and I want to avoid voiceover and lower thirds, which I associate with corporates. I'm going to ask the interviewees to introduce themselves, but I think this might feel contrived. Are there any alternatives and do we even need to know the characters' names? Great question, Alice. Let's dive into this one in some detail. Now, I totally get that we want our docs to look less corporate, less daytime news and more cinematic. That's what gives our films the high-end look. And seeing if there's any more interesting and less obvious ways to introduce characters in non-scripted is certainly something to strive for. So my key question in this circumstance would be, who is doing that really well already? Well, go and watch the cinema docs by the hugely talented Asif Kapadia. This Oscar-winning doc director made Senna, Amy and his latest Diego Maradona. And I love the way he just uses audio interview over archive and does away with the more conventional look and feel of traditional documentary. You don't see who's talking. It's all in audio. His style is like a kind of interview audio collage expertly crafted around archive. It's truly original and incredibly effective. So that's a really nice way to introduce the characters without the formality of lower thirds and my name is blah 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 that we see all over the place. Now let's just expand this a bit because what we're really talking about when we get down to the nitty gritty of this situation is that the audience needs to associate in their mind the name of this person with the face of this person. So let's set up a few scenarios to try and illustrate how this could work. Let's say we had an archive photo of the character we want to introduce. Now we could start on an extreme close-up and slowly pull out. And then after a few seconds, introduce either the character's voice or even better, someone else's voice referencing their name. I first met Alice, blah, 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 blah. Or Alice has been an editor for over X years. Of course, it's bound by what else we have from other characters' interviews and what else they say about the character we're trying to introduce. The point is that we're immediately associating the close-up archive photo with a voice, either from the character or another character, and that is doing the job of gelling the image and the name in the mind of the audience without a lower third. Of course, it doesn't have to be a still archive photo. It could be some B-roll or actuality of the character, which would do the same job. 
But if we were going to go down the B-roll or actuality route, just make sure no one else is in that shot and that we get a good look at them in either a close or a mid shot. You know, we can't introduce characters on super wide shots that we've never seen before because the audience want to see what that person looks like and also not be confused as to who to look at within the frame. We can have other people in the shot later, but only after we've established the solo shot first with the interview dialogue underneath. And that has been solidified in the audience's mind. Then we may be able to, you know, have a part of the shot that zooms out of a solo mid shot to show a group of other people as well. But it's all in the timing of the shot and the dialogue before allowing other people into the audience's mind. We've got to make sure that we've gelled those two things together. The other option that may be open to us is if we have a shot with the character's name in somewhere, say a newspaper headline saying Diego Maradona did this or that, or a sign about an event featuring the character's name. For example, tonight, an audience with Diego Maradona. This again is achieving the same thing, a visual representation of the character's name gelling with the dialogue of this character or a related character describing them coming in underneath. Of course, in these circumstances, a lot depends on the fact of how famous a character is. Is he or she a household name? Probably not. But then the final part of Alice's question kind of links into this. She asked, do we even need to know their name? Now, if it's one of the most famous football players ever, or a major film star, musician or politician, then probably not as that kind of assumption on the knowledge of the audience would be fair to make. But if the character is not well known, then we definitely need to know their name. Otherwise, the audience will be asking that question subconsciously over and over again, and it will irritate them. Of course, we can delay the revelation of the character's name for a certain period of time for specific dramatic reasons as well. And it's you know often nice when editors are a bit more adventurous around this. But a lot of broadcasters and streaming studios won't be that adventurous in this department, so it's worth bearing that in mind. All in all, there are a few cinematic avenues open to us when introducing characters. So take a look at some of those docs, Alice, and practice with some of these picture and dialogue-based techniques. I would just say finally that if you're going to try these out, make it obvious for the audience that this is a new character being introduced by doing things like starting new music or slowing down the pace so it's really clear this is someone new and not just lost in the middle of a montage or something like that. The last thing we want is unnecessary confusion in the mind of our audience. Hope this helps, Alice, and thanks for sending your question in. Of course, if you have a question, just reach out to us on social or email us at podcast at insidetheedit.com. Okay, episode 10 of this third season of Once Upon a Timeline is in the can. A massive shout out to our great friends over at Universal Production Music who supply every single track for this show. Don't forget, if you're sourcing music right now for your projects, dear friends, go and check out their site. They have over half a million tracks in every conceivable genre, tone, tempo, and mood. Or if you like any of these tracks on this or any other episode of our podcast, 
just go on over to insidetheedit.com and check out this episode's page for links to the Universal site so you can go ahead and license for your film. We're a really small company here at Inside the Edit, just a few passionate filmmakers trying to spread the word about this beautiful art form of ours. Helping us grow our creative community is really appreciated, so please don't forget to tag us on social and share it with your filmmaking friends. However, if you have 30 seconds to spare, a rate and review on Apple Podcasts is also really, really appreciated. Thank you so much for being part of the Inside the Edit community. Have a great week, dear friends, and I will see you very soon on another episode of Once Upon a Timeline. Stay cool, stay safe, and above all, stay cutting. Stay cutting.